In September 1934, a portion of a woman's torso was found on the shore of Lake Erie in Cleveland, Ohio. Weeks later, other parts of her body were found turned red from an unknown chemical. The woman became known as the Lady of the Lake. This seemingly isolated murder foreshadowed a grisly killer that haunted Cleveland for years to come. Today, let's discuss the puzzling case of the Cleveland Torso Killer. This is Red Web. Welcome back, Task Force, to another episode of Red Web, the show all about the unsolved mysteries of our world, from true crime to paranormal and a little bit of everything in between. I'm your resident mystery enthusiast, Trevor Collins, and joining me hearing this mystery for the very first time, Alfredo Diaz. I know nothing about Cleveland except that everyone dunks on it all the time. Come and look at both of our buildings. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, exactly. Like that. People make songs dunking on Cleveland. Jokes dunking on Cleveland. Yeah. Apparently it's just... It's a forgotten city that used to be huge. It was a steel city. Uh, and when, you know, industry kind shifted of... Shifted and... Yes, shifted. Like, people fled the city. And so now you have what once was a great city and you have some of the bones left. But yeah, I have some family members from there and a friend that lives there. And it's... It rivals Seattle in its overcast, rainy nature. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, I've, I think Seattle is probably the place that I've taken a vacation to the most, but I don't think I could ever live in Seattle just because it's so gloomy all the time and so rainy Beautiful all the summers. Time. Beautiful summers, but though. Yeah. Great places to eat and, like, um, I don't know, travel and visit to, but yeah, I don't know. I can't do I can't do rain. One of the it things might be I a reputation hate the, thing. I'm gonna be a Seattle most. apologist. Oh really? Yeah, it gets a, a an overcast name to it, and it does have overcast days and months and weeks. Mm-hmm. But but it's like it's not as bad as they say. But oh, continue. Please. I was about to say like you know, kind of piggybacking off the rain. One of the things that I just hate the most, and it's just random, is being wet and getting into a car. Like being like drenched oh. and getting into a car. I hate that. You don't want to be wet where where wet doesn't belong. Yeah, I don't like it. Yeah. I don't like it at all. Now, before we dive into this case, a few Red Web announcements. Again, Case Files is out now. We started on November 17th here in 2023, and we will be going every other week through the rest of this year over on our YouTube channel. But we want to thank our first members. In between those episodes, we will be offering bonus episodes to our first members, as well as a plethora of other accoutrements. Yeah, monthly live stream. Yeah. Discord access, mm-hmm. Discord events, things like that. And if you want to sign up for first, it is our Patreon model, essentially. You can go to redwebpod.com slash first. It is the best way to support this show. And it's about $5.99 a month. And it all comes directly to support this Red yep. Web thing. Yeah, it helps support the show. And then honestly, just in tandem, the things that you really like us doing, it helps fuel doing more of that. 100%. So... You know, like ghost hunts, that will that could help. It could definitely help. Yeah, 100%. Time. Oh, uh, I, and I almost forgot. Boys, today is the day. We've seen it coming. We've talked about it a little bit. It's Cyber Monday, November 27th. And right now, our Cryptid merch is available. And specifically for today, Fredo, if you use code Cryptid and you buy a hat and a shirt combo, you get the decal that comes with it for free. See, that is real, unlike all the fake photos of the cryptos that I see <laughs> online. And I'll be honest, Task Force, I love you. I believe in you and many things you can do, but you're probably not going to catch a cryptid. So you can catch it on your shirt instead. That's true. So join the Red Web Cryptid Division. Whether you like Bigfoot, Chupacabra, Jersey Devil, or Mothman, we got colors for all of them. Go in there. Get warm for this holiday season. Treat yourself with a gift. 
Treat a friend with a gift. Who knows? Code Cryptid. Now, as we dive in, the content warning, it's a grisly episode. You can find the content warnings in the description. Now, with that said, let me take you back to where this case begins. September 5th, 1934, a woman's torso was found on the shores of Lake Erie. Now, to reiterate, this is not officially where the case begins, but it is what begins a pattern of grisly murders in the Cleveland area. The head and legs of this person were removed with surgical precision, and the skin was covered in a chemical believed to be lime chloride or some kind of preservative. Other body parts of hers were discovered later on in the water, but her head was never found. The killer was never caught, and she could not be identified, so she became simply known as the Lady of the Lake. I just... I, I couldn't, man. I just could not cut into a human body. You passed I my just, test. I just know I can't. I mean, yeah, man. over the summer, I had to, uh, I, I got a lot of rabbits in my area. I had to put down a rabbit because um, it was injured and it was just going to be a slow, gruesome tough. death. I had to put it down. It was, it, I just, I was traumatized. Yeah. Still am. I can't imagine like a human being. Right. I couldn't even watch 127 hours. You know, he's oh, got to get through that nerve. Yeah. That's um, a slow cut. Yeah, man. Literally. <laughs> Now, while this is where our narrative begins, a lot of people consider this the unofficial kickoff to this serial killer's spree, but officially it is not. This case doesn't officially begin until a year later in 1935 in the part of Cleveland known as Kingsbury Run and the Roaring Third. Some consider them both to be a shared area. Some consider them to be two different neighborhoods. So is it just because like the killings didn't really pick up until like a year later so this was kind of like a beta test i i think it it's hard for me to know it's just we know that historically the cleveland police don't consider this to be part of the same spree the same killer's actions Interesting. but it does have similar patterns so i wanted to mention it at okay. least yeah but just going based off the historical police website that they have now, at this point, just to give some context, Cleveland was in the midst of the Great Depression after having seen explosive growth both economically and in population throughout the 1920s. I mean, it was the Roaring Twenties after all, but the nation was not immune to the depressions all the way through the 30s. Now, by the 1930s, Kingsbury Run was an area known locally as, quote, hobo jungle due to many homeless people transients, and other people living in poverty in tent cities and in shanty towns. The Roaring Third, a similar neighborhood directly east, was also a hub for crimes, such as gambling, sex work, drugs, and crimes of that nature of the time. So this is where we're going to be living, I guess, essentially for this entire case. This is where a lot of the bodies were found and where the police believed the murders were taking place or whoever was doing this would be living. I mean, yeah, I mean, if you got these big, like, tent cities and a lot of poverty, whatnot, I don't know. I just feel like it's the perfect storm for things, like, the infrastructure to just be very shaky with a lot of cracks, right? Mm -hmm. So, in terms of, like, I don't know, support for civilians, the police force, I, it's just, like, all bad, right? Yeah. It, it's, you're in the Depression, so I feel like there's just, everything is just going to have a lack of of polish to it or a lack of essentially just like support. Yeah, it's kind of a blind spot to the city, Yeah, right? Now, a year later, on September 23rd, 1935, this is where the case officially begins. Two teenage boys discovered a decapitated corpse at the bottom of a hill in the part of Cleveland known as Kingsbury Run. 
The victim was white and drained of blood wearing only socks. He had rope burns on his wrists and the genitals had been removed. The decapitated head was found nearby, buried, and near that head was the rest of the body, unburied. The victim was identified by his fingerprints as 29-year-old Edward Andrasi. In the past, Edward was an orderly in the psychiatric ward at the Cleveland City Hospital, and at the time of his death, Andrasi was unemployed, though he was known to have visited the Roaring Third habitually. I mean, off the bat, of course, you know, young adults had to find this. Mm-hmm. That's traumatizing. It's not the first time that this happens no. either. Oh, Kid, really? stepping into a scene that they're going, wait a minute, what's, oh, my, oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, this, this person's, oh man. They're sick. I'll just they're, get yeah, way ahead of they're, it. They're really sick. There's a they're lot really to come. Sick. Like, mm. dismembering the body, it, it, it just, I don't, Jesus. Yeah. So extreme. Oh yeah. Now, days later, while the police were still investigating the previous case, the decapitated body of another white male was found just 30 feet from this original crime scene of Edward Andrasi. In this particular case, it was an unnamed male victim that they could not identify. The skin seemed to be covered in a chemical preservative, much like the Lady of the Lake, but his body hair had been removed by some manner. Due to the oily and leathery condition of the skin, it appeared that the body had been set on fire sometime after death. Just like Andrasi, his genitals were also removed. Ultimately, the police were unable to identify the body, but they noticed these similarities, and so they began to believe that this was the same culprit and referred to the killer as the butcher of Kingsbury Run. Look, we said sick, and it's just even on another level. Mm -hmm. This person is just like mutilating these bodies now in different ways. Yeah. I don't even, and then like, I I could not, like, surprisingly enough, I feel like people like this need to be detained and studied. Like, what wiring in the human brain sets you down that path? This, yeah, these are very disturbing acts. I mean, I think it goes without saying, but it's just like, as you as you indicated, no normal human being could bring themselves to probably tear apart another human being or cut them apart with surgical precision, let alone do it repeatedly enough for the entire body to be yep. carved down to just a torso. And then to continue to mutilate beyond that, it's inhuman. But because of these similar patterns and the similar location and everything, I mean, this was days later. So seriously, something's going on. It's not like it's a year gone by, it's, it's days. The police began interviewing people in the area. And I'm going with historical terms here. They were looking for, quote, suspected perverts, simply because the male victims had their genitals removed. However, the police met countless suspects that matched their interpretation of this. I guess they defined most of the people they met as perverts, I guess. But as with many unsolved cases, you're going to see biases in play. You're going to see mishandling of information and strange investigation techniques. We're going to talk about how the investigation unfolded. But yeah, this this is a wild one. Wild one. Do you imagine being interviewed and you had nothing to do with this, but you just happen to find out that they're interviewing who they believed the killer to be a pervert. Like, come on, man. That's what? Well, that's insulting as all hell, dude. I'd be like, so wait, why are you asking me? Like, I don't know. We sized you up. Yeah. And you, you look know, like a pervert. You look a bit like a pervert. Whoa, whoa, man. Like, come on, Why'd you man. Why'd you gotta say that? It's like, it's like, I'm happy because like, I have my 50 alibi, so it's definitely not me. Yeah. You're telling me 
that I'm being profiled as like a pervert. <laughs> right, right. Come on, dude. That's Can, gonna that's just gonna shadow you. Like it's gonna your follow core, you, man. You're you just you just start going. Is that a permanent everywhere. record officer? <laughs> yeah. Can you yeah. scrub that part? Is that on a permanent record? <laughs> like, can we not? Right. I got a job. You know, I got Jesus. kids, and a wife to feed, and <laughs> insulting. Yeah. Now four months later. So these were like, within a week of each other. Now, four months later, in January 1936, pieces of a woman's body were discovered alongside a building. The body, too, was dismembered, wrapped in newspaper, and packed into two baskets. Ten days later, more pieces of her body were found in a nearby lot. The circumstances under which these pieces were found are unknown, and the head was never found. Jesus. Yeah. Though this time, they were able to identify 44-year-old Florence Polillo, who worked as a sex worker. Florence was a waitress and a barmaid on the edge of the Roaring Third. By this point, the public was very aware that a murderer was on the loose. Yeah, but it's going for, like, the people that are living in poverty. Right. And also, it seems like not only is this person going for victims of this neighborhood, this is also where they're being found. And to your point, yeah. this is kind of where broader society might be kind of turning a blind eye, whether mm -hmm. it be authority or just, like, normal civilian care, right? Or like yeah. empathy, right? Now it was another four months before yet another body was found. Now we're going to talk about these four in detail and then we'll talk in general. We'll summarize the rest because really there's a few nuanced details or differences between these ones. And then from here, it's kind of more of the same. And so I won't really describe every single one. Okay. Uh, yeah. But with one more, I think we'll kind of have a, a good idea of what we're working with here. So June 5th, 1936, two boys once again discovered the head of a man wrapped in a pair of pants near the bridge, near a bridge in Kingsbury Run. The next day, the torso was found outside the transit police building 1,500 feet from where the head was found. His body was nude and drained of blood, similar to earlier instances. Now, this unidentified victim was given the nickname the Tattooed Man simply because he had six tattoos. Due to the lack of blood, police believe that the killer brought the body parts to these locations after killing him somewhere else, which is super scary because then suddenly it isn't just that these murders are happening right locally. They could be happening anywhere across the city and then being yeah, brought locally. Being dumped in certain locations. Right. So it really opens up the net here. You said one of the body parts was near a police station? Yes. That's where the torso was found outside the transit police building. It's it's so interesting that like you get a lot of serial killers that are just so bold. Oh yeah. And he gets bolder. Oh my god. Yeah, they definitely get bolder. So the autopsy on this particular body showed that the victim was alive at the time of decapitation. Jesus. So we're only getting Oh my goodness. It's brutal. Yeah. Now I do want to highlight as we try to do here, we we try to collate all the data and as with every mystery, there's reasons why it's unsolved. There's conflicting information, there's hearsay, there's all this sort of stuff. Now, there's two pieces of conflicting information that we couldn't really nail down. On one hand, you have a railroad worker who told police that, you know, they worked in the area that the head was found. They told police that there was no head there at 3 p.m. on June 5th. However, there are other sources that say that the head was found in the morning. So... Basically, when it tr when we come down to when yeah. the head was planted, we don't know if it was in the nighttime, sometime in broad daylight. But again, this is just an example of how a case like this can easily not get fumbled. I don't want to blame anybody, but like can create confusion just because suddenly we have conflicting reports that yeah. both feel valid. That's how you get mysteries. 
But now, that, those are the four cases that we're really going to describe in detail. I'll, I'll kind of summarize the rest. But from 1935 to 1938, at least 12 victims of the Cleveland Torso Killer were found throughout the area of Kingsbury Run and the Roaring Third. Though, some sources claim up to, Christian, what was it, 24? Yeah, there are officially, by authorities, officially 12 victims, but people say they're up to 20 plus. I don't think we ever found a specific number, but just upwards of 20. Mm-hmm. And, like, it's a mystery. So I'm thinking they got away with it. Yeah. I just can't. We have some very interesting suspects to discuss at the end. Oh, I bet. I would love to hear your thoughts on it. But yeah, officially, cold case. Now, what makes this, to me, even more terrifying is the consistency, the boldness, the brutality. But on top of that, it was impossible for police to find any patterns. There was no consistent timing to the murders, or at least to the discovery of the bodies. It's almost like the murders happened somewhere at some time, and the discoveries happened whenever this person wanted it to happen. Now, each victim was found decapitated or without limbs in some way, and the bodies were often severed at the torso with surgical precision. So there is some sort of pattern here. Yeah, so is it like a doctor or a medical professional? Great because question. Because, I mean, you're using the word surgical precision here. Yeah. I mean, like a, a normal Joe off the street, you know, you know using a butcher knife. Yeah. Not I mean, going to look the same. they'd probably be hacking away at the body. Yeah. Ugh, I don't, oh, that's eerie. To know, know that this, this is someone that knows what they're doing. Ugh. Now, with regards to the location of murders and then being placed in these neighborhoods, there is one standout. There was one murder that actually occurred knowingly outside of Cleveland, and that this was the only known victim to have also been left in the place that the murder happened. Again, a lot of them seem to be murdered and then moved. Yeah. This one was found outside of Cleveland. So again, we're opening the net even further as to where this person could live, where their area of activity could be stemming from. And I'll go ahead and just kind of get ahead of myself. Tracing these individuals, we'll talk more about the investigation, but tracing these victims down was nigh impossible. And so we really don't know where they're coming from or who, where this killer is. I mean, like, yeah, how do you even, like, where do you even go? I mean, at that point, you're just hoping that they slip up and give you a breadcrumb trail right. that you could follow. Interesting kind of thing here is like we have explored serial killers but not ones that start to travel as much yeah usually it is a, a confined location and this is still relatively confined i don't know how far do we know christian how far outside of cleveland this one was let me double check yeah i think we know but i need to double check. sure yeah but you're i'm right. sure i'm sure Typically, mostly i mean i'm sure it mostly stays in cleveland yeah but does it become infinitely harder to track a serial killer patterns are just showing up in different states. That is a great instinct. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in one of the suspects. Oh, one of the really? Theories. Now, to give you a parallel, so I don't kind of spoil where we're going with that one. When we talked about the serial girl annihilator in that episode yes. here in Austin, Texas, there was a theory, right, that that person, that serial killer, first of the United States, was actually... Jack the Ripper, true. who had moved internationally because some of the kind of habits, some of the patterns matched up. Again, that's just a theory, but there is something similar here. And so it, I'm, I'm just openly wondering, like, is it that serial killers tend to stick to a certain neighborhood that seems to be a broad, like a, a general case? But is it that also when a serial killer moves to a different location that they just pick up a different name? Is it that the police don't expect them to travel 
Now I'm oh. sure Task Force, there are cases where you know serial killers do travel, and and that's been shown. Right. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, I don't have an exhaustive that knowledge off the top of my head. Sounds like infinitely hard. You got to work with different departments, yeah. jurisdictions 100%. come into play, and different states and state laws. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's like a, you know the old meme where like the FBI agents like no. This is my case, and he like tells the p chief of police to back down, and then the CIA runs in. And he goes, "No, this is our scene," yeah. and you know, like then suddenly the president's there, and he goes, "This is my scene." It's you funny. know, it's really hard to know in a case like that. But also, then sharing information, like you got to kind of know that that's happening. I don't know. I don't know. Now, almost all of the victims were unidentified, and I think that is partly due to the fact that they were so totally dismembered. We do have Androsi, we have Palillo. Since their fingerprints were already on file with the police, that is one of the flaws with the fingerprint system is that you kind of need uh, to be yeah, in there. Yeah, we kind of talked about that. Yeah. Now, one body is believed to have belonged to a woman named Rose Wallace. She was a sex worker in Kingsbury Run who was reported missing, but it could not be confirmed if she was one of these individuals. In total, there were six unidentified men and four women of various ages. Most of them were white, but at least one, believed to be Wallace, was black. All the victims were believed to have been homeless or transients due to the area that they were found. And it could also be why they were so hard to trace. Now, the body of the last known victim, an unidentified man, was placed in view of Elliot Ness's office window and was discovered on August 16th, 1938. Interestingly, that, that was the same day that a different victim, a woman's body, was found earlier in the day. These are the final two victims of the known Cleveland Torso Killer found on this day. Now, if you don't know Elliot Ness, it appears that this killer was taunting the police and the man known as Elliot Ness. Ness was the leader of the Untouchables and director of public safety for Cleveland. The Untouchables were a group of law enforcement said to be incorruptible during Prohibition, and they're the ones responsible for arresting Al Capone. There's a uh, great movie, The Hit Untouchables. It. It's not just The Untouchables. Oh, okay. It's a great movie. Gotta keep it the movie podcast about this mysteries. really good. The movie rules <laughs> you went with the untouchables movie i started bringing in music to this one when oh. we were talking about the outline i was like there's a line in california love by tupac mm -hmm. where he says untouchable like elliot ness and he talks about the track hitting your eardrums like a slug to your chest damn fire yeah so yeah in brief we know who elliot ness is now but again in plain view of otherwise a police officer's window do we have this final victim being found? Bold. Also, just like, man, just thinking about it, being a police officer or a high-ranking detective or commissioner, I just feel like you are a target. It is... It, You're putting your life on the line rough. with a case like this, yeah. you know? Now, with these final two bodies found, again, on August 16th, 1938, the murders seem to stop just as suddenly as they began. This episode of Red Web is sponsored by HelloFresh. The holidays are here, and HelloFresh can help you take the stress out of dinner by delivering everything you need to cook up tasty meals right to your door, saving you tons of time. Everyone wants to cut back on errands and spending time in checkout lines this time of the year. So skip that extra grocery store trip and instead get fresh ingredients and delicious recipes delivered with HelloFresh. Just pick your meals, decide on a delivery date, and sit back. And because of that holiday hecticness, it's the perfect time to try HelloFresh's 15-minute meals. These quick fixes help you get a wholesome meal on the table in less than it takes to get delivery. I love HelloFresh because it's just quick, easy delivery. You don't have to spend a ton of time in the grocery store, especially on the weekends when the grocery stores are overly packed and it takes hours sometimes to get your whole entire order together. 
So go to HelloFresh.com slash RedWebFree and use code RedWebFree for free breakfast for life. One breakfast item per box while subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life at HelloFresh.com slash RedWebFree with code RedWebFree. This episode of Red Web is sponsored by Rocket Money. Ever feel like subscriptions are taking over your life? We're all subscribed to something these days, but guess what? There's a superhero in town and it's called Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills all in one place. But this isn't your ordinary personal finance app. It's your sidekick in the battle against sneaky subscriptions, your guardian of spending, and your trusty bill negotiator all rolled into one. I've been using Rocket Money for a very, very long time. It's a great way to track all my expenses, and I've got a ton of subscriptions that I do here and there. And they're just reoccurring because myself, like everyone else, forgets to unsubscribe sometimes. So I get a friendly reminder every week of what I'm subscribed to, and that way I can manage my money. With over 5 million users and counting, Rocket Money has helped save its customers an average of $720 a year and $1 billion in total savings so far. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions and manage your money the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com redweb. That's rocketmoney.com slash redweb. Rocketmoney.com slash redweb. This episode is sponsored by Uncommon Goods. Uncommon Goods makes your holiday shopping stress-free by scouring the globe for the most remarkable and truly unique gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's your secret Santa or your entire family. From art and jewelry to kitchen, home, and bar, Uncommon Goods has something for them. Uncommon Goods looks for products that are high quality, unique, and often handmade or made in the U.S. that make the most meaningful out-of-the-ordinary gifts anywhere. When you shop at Uncommon Goods, you're supporting artists and small independent businesses. And with every purchase you make at Uncommon Goods, they give back $1 to a nonprofit partner of your choice. It's the holiday season. Going to Uncommon Goods just makes things super easy. I love their categories. They have questions like who you're shopping for, gifts under $50, you need birthday gifts, anniversary gifts, gifts under $100. You got customer favorites. The whole gauntlet is there. So that way you can go and get something meaningful for the holiday season. To get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com slash red web. That's uncommongoods.com slash red web for 15% off. Don't miss out on this limited time offer. Uncommon Goods. We're all out of the ordinary. This episode of Red Web is sponsored by Misty Mountain Gaming. Misty Mountain Gaming is a dice company that has an incredible catalog of dice and all sorts of materials like stone, resin, glass, and metal. They also have tons of specialty sets like their Ragnar's Bone dice set or Legends of Valhalla Hollow Metal dice set. Their dice are perfect for any RPG like Dungeons and Dragons, Pathfinder, Shadowrun, and so much beyond that. Plus, Misty Mountain Gaming has new dice sets monthly, making it the biggest selection on the web. And they're the only dice company that offers a lifetime warranty on all dice sets, including stone and glass sets. Misty Mountain Gaming has amazing dice sets. I uh, visited a booth over at RTX this year, and they had a wide selection of different colors and different styles and different materials. And just having any one of these sets, you bring it to your D&D game, and everyone's going to be looking at your set of dice, wishing they had a unique pair just like yours. Don't miss their Black Friday sale, where you'll get a free dice set when you buy two. Misty Mountain Gaming is the only premium dice company that offers this deal. Our friends at Misty Mountain have an exclusive offer for Task Force members. Just go to mistymountaingaming.com and use code REDWEB for a free acrylic dice set of your choice when you spend $20 or more. So let's talk now about how the investigation unfolded, what Elliot Ness did, what the police did to try to solve this. As you can imagine, hundreds if not thousands of people came forward with eyewitness accounts, so many interrogations, 
And we're going to get into all that. But and just to answer the question oh, yeah, about yeah. where the the one body that was found outside of Cleveland was, it was in Columbus, which is about two, I think, two and a half hours okay. outside of Cleveland. I was thinking suburbs, but that's I'm I'm glad we asked because, mm. yeah, one of the other big C's of Ohio. So, Cleveland's mayor ordered Elliot Ness to take on the murder case. Now, reportedly, Ness sort of ignored this case at first before the mayor actually asked him to get involved. Probably just not on his forefront. Either way, I don't know. He did, in fact, as you can imagine, struggle to identify a suspect and enacted raids on houses in or near Kingsbury Run in order to find any sort of uh, suspects. Well, extreme. Very. This is an extreme individual. You'll, you'll yeah. see. This is a case of extremes for sure. Now, because of the locations of the bodies and the inability to identify many of them, police believe that most of the victims must have been transients, homeless people, or people of lower economic class. Police look through missing persons records in hopes of finding any sort of matches that could draw any sort of conclusions using physical attributes of the victims that they could at least identify, like the tattooed man, right? They searched through local and national records. I love that. They went national with it, yep. using fingerprint databases, fingerprints collected at the scene, and again, nothing really came back. To kind of add some longevity to this case, they even created a death mask of the tattooed man. We talked about death masks in the past, but basically it's it's making a an imprint, a negative, and then a positive. Basically a sculpture of the face using a, a print of the actual face and then painting it to match so it looks like an everlasting, you know, visage of the person. Yeah. So now you have a longstanding piece of evidence that you can use to help identify them long after, you know, decay takes place. Yep. In fact, they actually took this mask and the images of the tattoos and they displayed it at the Great Lakes exhibition a few weeks after his death to try to get any more eyes on it if possible. This was also known as the World Fair of 1936. The Cleveland police also went around neighborhoods looking for information on the victims and any possible witnesses. They followed hundreds of leads that grew out of these initial investigations and interviewed over 5,000 witnesses and potential suspects how do you even just keeping track of all that and cataloging right? that oh my and this is the days of paperwork yeah you know uh. it's files and files and handwritten yeah, data it is a lot of cabinets oh yeah now from these initial investigations the police received tons of leads of course as we've seen in the past countless citizens claim to have seen body parts everywhere or seen something to do with this ne'er-do-well Ness's team sometimes portrayed themselves, in fact, this is interesting, as members of the Kingsbury Run community in order to try to gather information from locals they wanted to try to blend in. On a more extreme example of this, a police officer actually ran naked through Kingsbury Run in order to try to lure this person out, try to make themselves look like a susceptible victim, so that way maybe the murderer would identify them and come after them. Obviously that didn't work, but bold strategy. I mean, they're throwing everything at the wall. Very bold, though. Very. Again, this is a case of extremes. It really is. Now, like I said, they interviewed over 5,000 witnesses and possible suspects, but they interrogated over 9,000 individuals. That is so many people. That is so much time and money spent into that. I mean, these are very gruesome murders, but, oh man, what are the chances that, like, one of the people you interviewed was... Oh, you know what I mean? That reminds that keep, every time we talk about a case like this, I always go back to the Zodiac case because, yeah. like, especially the movie that portrayed the case. Because, man, there was there was just like a ships in the night moment. You know, Task Force, go check out that full episode we did on it. But basically, one of the key, like one of the convincing major suspects, 
was like hand in hand with a police officer, like face to face, talked with them, and then off they went. And so again, it's not official. It's it's not been diagnosed or whatever, but like, yeah. What if they had interrogated yeah, the actual person? They're like, I don't know, man. I don't know. How could you know? Especially when you're interrogating like 9,000 people. That's you're just not going to be able to give, give the same amount of like quality and focus as you did like the first handful, you know? Oh, for it's sure. It's just so many. By the time you're at like 7,000, you're just like, hey, come in. Right. Ask some questions. You're just going through the rigmarole. You're, yeah, it's just, you're numb to it. You're numb to it. You're tired with it. And then this is why you have those classic red web kind of things on the cork board where you're trying to pin it all together because it can't be one person doing it all. And so you have a team doing it. And how does the team collate their information where they're, you know, picking up on the details of all their particular interrogations? Like not an enviable position for sure. Now, on August 18th, 1938, two days after the last victims were found, Ness set fire to a shantytown in Kingsbury Run after looking through the shacks and gathering 63 suspects. There are a lot of different assumed reasons for having done this, but he claimed that he did so to get possible future victims out of the area and to then arrest people who lived there for homelessness, which would get their fingerprints on file. Basically, a, a claim for, hey, this is for the greater good. It's going to get a lot more people in our system with their fingerprints. It's going to force people out of this dangerous area. But also, he was claiming that this might flush the killer out, you know, by burning all these shanties down. I mean... Again, it's during the Depression, right? Yeah. Things were wild. Thing, things were very wild. And it's also Prohibition time. So mm -hmm. a lot of things, you know, a lot of looking the other way, a lot of paying things off, a lot of yep. like, you know, speakeasy times. Now, Ness was criticized for his handling of the case, especially the fire. And many believe that he was doing anything necessary to prevent further damage to his reputation. This is ultimately where the case ends. Ness and the police continued to search for the suspect but no definitive killer was ever found. Media and the public mocked Ness for his failure to catch the killer, though he claims he solved it. The murder stopped and the case remains cold. I mean, I feel like you just got lucky. Right. Right? I don't think you solved anything. In that case, I would just sit back and shut the hell up. Right. Because, you right. know, because the, the killer just did you, or did me a favor at that point. By ending? Yeah. By just stopping. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't even know how, like, where to be. Especially, again, the further back you go, it just seems like the easier it is to get away with murder. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, mm -hmm. it's like, are you kidding me? There was a camera that they pulled from the window on a store, and it was like a small little uh, pet cube or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, you... You'd get caught by like the most randomest little oh, yeah. thing. CCTV it, everywhere. Yeah. Not in this time. And I do want to fact check myself. I said it's prohibition times. It is after. It's just after prohibition, which was from the beginning of 1920 to the end of 1933. So we're outside of it, but I'm just Could saying some it's in the air, yeah. right? And we are immediately following that roaring 20s kind of zeitgeist energy into the Great Depression. So again, it is a time of extremes, yeah. as is a case of extremes. So... With that said, though, it is time to discuss the theories and the suspects. And boy, are there some intriguing suspects at play here. I'm very eager to get your gut check on. First up is a man named Willie Johnson. He was considered a suspect after he was found to have committed a similar crime in June of 1942. So this is a suspect that came four years later. 
from the final victims being found. Now, a woman told police that she saw Johnson throwing large trunk away into a dumpster. Inside this trunk was the torso of Margaret Wilson. Meanwhile, her head and her arms were found somewhere else nearby. Her legs were found in Johnson's home a week later. So we have a very similar MO here where you have a torso, a head, arms, legs, and then scattered. But a witness nailed him, police found it out, and so that's why he's kind of a, a suspect. But other than that, I mean, it's circumstantial evidence. It is obviously a terrible person, but circumstantial evidence is going to be an overarching theme for some of these suspects. But I feel like we nailed it. There he is. Ooh, let me go ahead and put another nail in that coffin. Okay. Johnson supposedly knew Rose Wallace, not a confirmed victim, but a highly believed victim, right? One of the people that wasn't confirmed, but people were convinced that it could be and may have known Lillo. Again, circumstantial, oh, but we're close. But it's real close. Now, I want you, I'm going to go ahead and, and just soundbite what you just said. How is that not the killer? Because you're going to be saying that each one. Really? Yeah. Oh! <laughs> yeah. How, oh, yeah. There's so many people that are like, like closely tied to possibly being a killer for such a heinous, unique crime. Stop copying the worst things I've ever heard of in my life. Jesus. Are these copiers or just getting catched? Errs? I don't, but this is. <laughs> go ahead and put that down. People will be saying that by 2030. Um, <laughs> okay. So let's move on now to the next suspect. In relation to the murder of Palillo, 52-year-old Frank Dolajal was arrested in July of 1939, almost a year after the torso murder suddenly stopped. Dolajal lived with Palillo for an unknown period of time and even knew Edward Androssi and Rose Wallace. He confessed to Palillo's murder before dying under suspicious circumstances, as it is documented, while he was in police custody on August 24th, 1939. So, these suspicious circumstances included being hanged in his cell, and an autopsy showed that he had sustained broken ribs before his death. On top of that, the hook that he was hanged on was 5 feet 7 inches from the ground, but Dolajal was said to have been 5 foot 8. So he would have been stood unless his knees were bent, but that takes a lot of purpose, right? So, he was murdered. And, you know... I don't know personally if that undermines the confession in particular. That's true. It could be aggression, anger coming out. It's human nature in a sense. But it does call something into question that we're going to explore in the next suspect, which is coercion of a uh, confession. I mean, that's the thing, right? They want, they need to give answers to the people, to the public. You're, you're forcing these people to, uh, if they're not already confessing, just highly suspicious people mm -hmm. to like confess or you're putting them in like tough situations. Like, ah, man. Right. This one doesn't have a lot of other information around it. It is, again, very circumstantial and very, again, very suspicious. You can take it in two totally different ways. Is it a true confession with a lot of anger that came into play and accidents happened? Was it a lot of people actually believe that it was coerced in some way, that this confession was forced upon him by the police because this confession in particular sounded rehearsed and that maybe his suspicious death in the, in the cell was some sort of cover-up. We will never know because that's all we have with regard to Frank Dolezal. But really his connections were just knowing the people though. Truly, yes. Damn. Yeah. 
knowing the people, and then confessing. So no proven similar murderous habits as we saw with Willie Johnson. But that brings us our third suspect, Dr. Francis Edward Frank Sweeney. Uh-huh, doctor. Mm-hmm. This is the, the doctor you wanted to see. Well, you didn't want to see them, but you wanted to hear of them. Now, Frank Sweeney was another witness considered by Elliot Ness. After serving in World War I, Sweeney became a heavy drinker and drug user as a result of his experiences in the war. When he was arrested by Ness in May of 1938, they had to wait days for him to sober up in a police-provided hotel. Ness investigated Sweeney in secret and was only known to the public as Dr. X. It was kept under wraps because Sweeney was related to a U.S. congressman. Now, the identity of Dr. X was not released to the public until the 1970s for that reason. This secrecy, it raises some eyebrows for what comes next or later. He was considered a suspect because he, of course, was a surgical resident at a hospital in Kingsbury Run. He would know how to dismember a body with surgical precision. Yep. He would have that knowledge. His wife also claimed that he would be gone for days at a time and not know where he was and there would be no accountability there. In fact, someone claimed a doctor had tried to drug them on the same street where Sweeney had an office. It's also worth noting that Sweeney appeared in court for, quote, competency hearings five times during the span of these murders. Other than the two failed polygraph tests, which we know are not entirely reliable, yep. all evidence against Sweeney is circumstantial. However, these tests were administered by Leonard Keeler, the actual inventor of the polygraph test, who then told Ness, interestingly, quote, that's your man. I might as well throw my machine out the window if I say anything different. He was released from police custody after two weeks of interrogation. Interestingly, once Sweeney committed himself to a psychiatric hospital, the killings stopped. Some believe that this case is technically solved with Sweeney being the killer, but not officially. Regarding the aforementioned interrogations, they took place unethically, without a lawyer present, not following the Miranda rights, and in the hotel. So their results are highly debatable. Man, if, if one more killing happened once he was locked up, you could easily just scratch him off. Right, right. The timing. There's just three highly suspicious individuals. I'll go ahead and say, with my opinion, two highly suspicious. Two, two. Yeah, it's and, two. And one, one seems like they were kind of... It's suspicion on suspicious. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. Because that's where it, start, it starts to get hairy, and it's like, unless you were there, you can't draw a conclusion. I really don't know if I can have an opinion on Suspect 2, to be honest. Yeah, Suspect 2 is very much, it just seems like they're course into giving a confession. It's possible. Um, One. So one did a crime very similarly in 1942, was immediately found and seen by a woman. Police got him. How's it not that person then? Yeah. A similar crime? Who else is, you know what I mean? I mean, copycat. It was, I mean, like, does it line up for him to be a copycat? It could, it could line up for them to be a, a copycat. You know, they knew Rose Wallace, and they may have known Palillo. God. I don't believe the doctor did. Sweeney over here, did did they know any of these victims by chance? Not from what we could see. The biggest thing for him was just the really knowledge. The location. The knowledge and then being in the location. Yeah. And then an eyewitness saying that a doctor tried to drug them on the same street as his office, which is, again, circumstantial. But How did they know it was a doctor? It's just the precision of the, the cuts, right? Mm. You know? Man. No, I'm talking about how oh, a random gotcha. person on the street know it was a doctor trying to drug them. That's well, a great was he in his lab coat and was like, you. You know what I mean? Like, I don't. 
Yeah, that's a great, qual- uh, great I, question. Right? Like, how do you hmm. how do you know? That? Maybe he had like a doctor's this person telling the truth, like a bag, like one of those like doctor bags, right? <laughs> the traveling doctor bags. Did they see the handwriting? Now that would be a dead giveaway. That's true. It looks like scribbles. It's a doctor <laughs> yeah. for sure. Now I know your 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 partner is a nurse. Mm-hmm. Um, how's her handwriting doing? It's is not it, atrocious. Is it decaying? It's. I haven't checked recently. As they get better with their skill set, is it going downhill? I just. I'll, I'll, I'll be honest. I, I mean, have they, they write your name every year. A lot of paperwork. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I want to see like a timeline every year. Oh, can you sign this? Is the yearly signing of uh, <laughs> of our <laughs> relationship? <laughs> it's, uh, just really, just, just happy. look at the birthday cards every year and see. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. I mean, a lot of the stuff is digital now, but yeah, I do want to check your handwriting. Now. <laughs> um, man, I just—I mean, the first person just seems like such a strong suspect. Yeah, and the second one, again, like yeah, now that I'm kind of like thinking about it. It's just more so that like it was a doctor in the area. Yeah, yeah. Well, now that I've let you cook on that, I want to go ahead and scramble your brains a little bit more. Oh Lord! Our final suspect, and this is more of a theory. And I did hint at this earlier. In December 1938, Ness began receiving postcards from someone claiming to be Francis Sweeney. The writer claimed that he had moved to California and that they had killed a woman and buried her head in Los Angeles. Other postcards simply taunted Ness, but this one had some more detail. I'll actually show you an image of one of these postcards here directed to Elliot Ness. Now, while you look at that, I'll give you some more information. In 1947, after the murder of Elizabeth Short, Detectives began to take this letter a little bit more seriously, many years later, in fact. Now, Short, if you recognize that name, it's because we have covered this case before. She was also known as Black Dahlia. Yes. She was dismembered at her torso with surgical precision and also drained of blood, though she was not decapitated. We do, like I said, a whole episode on that case if you're interested, Task Force. But many believe that the Black Dahlia killer and the Cleveland Torso killer could be the same person. That said, once again, as has been the theme, the evidence is only circumstantial, and Short's murder was a decade after the killings in Cleveland. I mean, like, at that point, it could just be inspired by... Here's another postcard for what it's worth. Also, I'm sure everyone and their mother wanted to taunt Elliot, too. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, the public ridiculed him for for the handling of things. seemed like the public was kind of on him. Yeah. But yeah, there you go. So to get a little bit more specific now with regards to your your question, like it does seem that the MO for a lot of serial killers is to at least maintain a moderate stomping ground. Like they don't tend to travel too broadly, maybe a few hours away as we saw here, but also in some other cases. But that is just now I'm just positing out loud task force. I'd be very curious to hear your hive mind response. But like, you know, is it just that when a serial killer maybe moves state or moves country or whatever, that suddenly they just pick up a different name? Or has there been a time where someone's traveled internationally and we go, oh, that's the same person? We have it as a theory in two cases yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. But other than that, I don't know if that's been confirmed because we haven't covered every serial killer out there. Right. Um, just, the, I mean, just the ones that we've covered, they haven't really been like travelers. Yeah. And even then, you could travel and then change up your MO, and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden, you're a different serial killer. Yep. You know? like there could be someone who was a serial killer and has, you know, three different names, but is really the, it's like, you know, three different serial killers publicly, but it's really the same person, which is just 
absolutely oh yeah wild to me i mean what's wild to me is that we come away from a lot of these well-known cases right zodiac killer black dahlia we've done a handful of others that aren't springing to mind right now but we always walk away going like man that person really felt like it was them but then another suspect almost equally feels just as compelling and so it makes me go well i'm just very uh I'm just glad I'm not a police officer. I'm glad I'm not a sounds so difficult. A PI or some sort of investigator in some sense, especially from like a hundred years ago. Trying to like put this all together. Cause you're like, well, these two people feel like so equally at fault. Like it's them, but you gotta nail one yeah. down and you have to have like no reasonable doubt in there. Yeah. I feel Why? the further back you go as an investigator, the more you have to rely on luck and the actual perpetrator like slipping up mm -hmm. which is just rough man now you just have you have you know gps tracking uh digital footprints you know what i mean oh yeah your it's cell phone's pinging go, all sorts of stuff yeah it's hard to go and do in, in anything without pinging somewhere even momentarily oh yeah I mean, we saw that with the Chicago Tylenol murders, for example. Instantly, we have some CCTV action. Now, it's not that great. It's kind of like coming yeah. around on the technology side. It's, it's, I think, the 80s, mm -hmm. where digital is just picking up its popularity, but it's not as good as film. No. But it makes CCTV accessible. And so, you know, we've had more modern cases where people start getting seen, but still they're unsolved just because of that. But... Yeah, it'll it'll be fascinating to see what future technology holds for preventing cases like this. But yeah, I can't imagine anyone walking away from an activity like this now. Yeah. God, no. Well, this has been the Cleveland Torso Killer. A wild case with huge ups and downs. A lot of gruesome action. It's a case of extremes. Again, yeah. 100%. This is really like pushed. Like this case is really on the like, like over the top spectrum. Mm-hmm. And while we did see... The incarceration of Suspect 1, the death of Suspect 2, and the release of Suspect 3, it's hard to know, with peace of mind, if this person was ever caught or put away, or if they lived out the rest of their life amongst us. Oh, I don't even, oh, I don't like thinking about that. But, Task Force, this has been another case, another mystery here with Red Web. Fredo, I'll see you right back here next week for another mystery. <laughs>